1 Samuel chapter 18, if you'll join me there. We just began sort of peeking into chapter 18 last time together, went as far as verse 4. We'll be picking up this evening in verse 5 there. And these chapters now, as we go into them, chapter 18, chapter 19 particularly, we'll notice we, we really see in these chapters sort of a contrast, particularly between King Saul and David, who's the anointed king uh, at this time. And there's this real contrast of where these two individuals are at. Saul, of course, and David in some ways uh, kind of picture for us really the, the differentiation, the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, Saul so often being a picture of what our life looks like if we live in the flesh and David in these chapters particularly here a good representation of what it looks like to walk in the spirit to be in right relationship with God. And Saul's at this point remember the reigning king but yet he's the rejected king. He still holds his position upon the throne. He will for some time, but he's already been rejected by God because he himself has rebelled against God. He's rejected God's will and plan. He doesn't listen to the voice of the Lord, and he's in a process of decline because of that. Whenever someone begins to uh, choose to not listen to the voice of the Lord, it always begins a dec decline in their life. And we see Saul really just gradually uh, falling apart at the seams, morally spiritually, mentally, emotionally, all these complications beginning to come into his life as the result of just not listening to the voice of the Lord, not obeying God's will for his life. And David at this point, in contrast, is God's chosen king. He's the one who has the call of God upon his life, the, the king who God has now chosen for himself, a man after God's own heart. And David in these chapters and in the chapters ahead is in a process of being prepared to ultimately assume the role and the calling that God has for his life. Again, Saul, having refused God's will, is continually becoming more unstable and unhealthy. We'll see in his behavior things like pride and fear and insecurity and jealousy and anger and selfishness and cruelty and striving. And these are always marks of the flesh, of the sin nature. And David, in his life, remember, is seeking to honor God's will, and he's being tested and prepared. God's putting him through the crucible, if you would, to get him ready to be able to handle the role that God has in store for him, the plan of God. And in David's life, we see things in contrast to Saul, like humility and trust in God rather than striving to make things happen. In David, we see things like marks of loyalty and faithfulness. David has a heart of submission. We see self-control in David's life and patience and servanthood and sacrifice and so forth. And these are, of course, marks of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit when we're in union with God and right relationship with God. Now, as we come to chapter 18, pick up here in verse 5 where we left off. Remember, we're right after David's glorious defeat of the giant Goliath who was intimidating and oppressing the people of God. David's had this incredible triumph. He's blown the minds of Saul, of all Saul's generals, of really the entire army of the nation of Israel by having his victory as this young man who just has tremendous zeal for God and just a great love for the Lord. And God blessed that and gave him a victory over the giant Goliath. And as a result of that, we saw there in chapter 18, verse 2, that at this point, Saul employs young David full time in his royal staff. 
Up to this point, remember, David, it seems, was allowed to go back and forth between his home in Bethlehem, where he would take care of his father's sheep. He continued to tend the sheep and take care of them. And periodically, he would be summoned to the palace, if you would, or wherever Saul would dwell at. And he would use his musical ability to provide worship music in a therapeutic way to sort of soothe Saul and to help him when this distressing spirit would come upon him to sort of calm his heart. And he would be going back and forth. But at this point now, there's an obvious indication there's something special about David. The hand of God is upon David. The presence of the Lord is so evident in his life. And Saul recognizes he's a great asset. uh, And anything Saul can do to secure his throne to keep his kingdom moving forward, he wants to do that. And if you can utilize David in that process, that just works out better for him. Now, keep in mind, sovereignly, what God's doing is just allowing David to have greater access to the throne and to the things of what it means to be a king as a part of the preparation process for David to allow him to see more and to learn more and be exposed to the life of what it's like to be a king. So David now is employed, it seems, full-time. He no longer goes back to Bethlehem. He's with Saul in his presence full-time now as the king. And Saul wants to utilize him. Verse 5, we pick it up in chapter 18. It says, so David went out, notice, wherever Saul sent him. So again, we see the temperament of David, that he was loyal. He was a submissive, faithful young man. When he received uh, direction, when he was given orders by someone in authority over his life, it simply says there, David went out wherever Saul sent him. Saul was his boss, Saul was his employer, Saul was the person who had authority over his life, so wherever Saul asked him to go or sent him, David just complied. He was obedient, he had a submissive attitude, again, this is a mark of someone who's in right relationship with the Lord, he just went wherever Saul would send him out, different uh, uh, military endeavors and so forth, and verse 5, we read of David, he behaved wisely. And Saul then set him over the men of war. So David's being promoted. He's giving greater responsibility. And he was accepted, that is welcomed, in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, this is a very unique thing because keep in mind, as we said, The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, we've studied in prior books, that typically the military age was around 20 years old. If you were 20 years old and above, you were viewed from ancient Israel's perspective uh, as someone who should be functioning as a responsible, liable adult. And so because of that, you could serve in the army. So at 20 years old, uh, there was more expected of you and you were able to function in a military capacity at that time. Uh, Again, what's very interesting is is David, we're not 100% certain, but as we said, chronologic, at the time he slays Goliath, he was probably still somewhere around his maybe, you know, mid to upper teenage years. So now he's come into full-time service for Saul. He's beginning to serve as sort of one of his captains or generals, if you would. He's going out. He's leading military endeavors. It says he's obediently taking any mission that's given to him, and he's behaving very wisely. There's an obvious indication that he's just a young man that has incredible just prudence and and wisdom for his age, the way that he would handle affairs. He just behaved very wisely. He was a good steward. And this became evident to Saul and to all the people in Israel and in the military. And that caused David to be elevated at a very young age. Now, here's this rather very young man 
And now he has responsibility in leadership roles over people, no doubt, twice his age. The majority of people that he's leading are all older than him. But it's just simply because the hand of God was upon him and there was a wisdom from the Lord that was in his life. And so he's being elevated. Again, what's God doing? God's further preparing him, teaching him how to lead, allowing him to learn how to handle responsibility because this is ultimately what God's plan was for his life. And so God's using even these things in the early years of his life to, to cultivate and to develop these kind of things. And listen, the Lord does work in these ways. God works in all things. In these early days of David's sort of, you could say, sort of initial employment with King Saul, God was using those things as training processes to get David ready for the leadership role and the future responsibilities that were going to exist in his life. Because as a young man, he finds himself leading, as I said, soldiers at a very, very young age. And, you know, I look at this and I think to myself firsthand how true that was in my life and how God does these kind of things in your life. I remember when my wife and I were first married, we got married very young and I was working at the place that I was, uh, South Jersey Glass, and the Lord was just blessing and, and honoring just my labor and my work there. And before I knew it, in a very short period of time, I found myself in a managerial role supervising people who had been a part of the company, those who were road mechanics. I was serving as an estimator. I would evaluate jobs and estimate, and then I would run the mechanics, send them out to their different jobs. And that began to involve me having to basically determine uh, which guys were going to take which jobs. Some of these guys, which at that point I was in my early 20s and I was directing guys, some of them who had been at the company 30, 40 years. And I was their boss telling them what the, it wasn't always easy. Uh, it wasn't always real well received. Uh, and at times it was awkward and learning how to, to manage that and to handle that and having that responsibility and them basically having to comply with what I asked them to do. And if I said, pull off of this job and go to that job. And, but yet I look back in that in hindsight and realize that God was using all those things. Again, I could have looked at, oh, work, work, this is just work. I hate work. Look, God uses everything. God was using that because God knew the calling and the plan he had for my life and how very shortly, within a matter of a few years after that, we would be planning our first church in Pennsylvania at a rather young age. Uh, and God was developing those leadership capacities and the ability to know how to handle those things with a proper attitude and, and to know how to relate to people properly when the majority of them are older than you and you're the one in a leadership role. So I say that as we look at David's life here and we evaluate our lives, don't ever think that there's any part of your life that God's not using for his purposes. Your job your responsibilities, your daily activities. God is using all those things, developing character, shaping us, and a lot of times preparing us, getting us ready for purposes and things that he wants to do in our lives. And here David was learning how to lead at a very, very young age, but it got him ready to be the ultimate king and military general. He would be years down the road ahead. Well, verse 6, things start to get interesting. Now watch this. It says, now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, and take notice, David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines. He was the one going out winning the majority of the battles at this point. That the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with joy and musical 
instruments. Now, uh, what's happening here is the soldiers are coming back from a, a recent conflict. Uh, and this was very typical as they would come back from a military endeavor. This was a very typical thing in that culture in the ancient days where the women would come out like a, a welcoming home party and they would greet the men and the soldiers that were coming back with singing and dancing and great celebration. And not just because they were happy that they won a victory. You have to understand in that culture, when their husbands and their sons and their uncles and their grandfathers went out to war, there was a lot at stake there. Not only just potentially losing a loved one, I mean, if you lost your spouse or potentially a son, I mean, th this could mean not just losing somebody that meant very much to you, that could mean losing your entire livelihood, your ability to survive. And so this was a great deal when they returned back home. This was a very exciting thing and a very typical way to honor them, to welcome them. So they're coming back and as they're returning, David's had a great victory. King Saul, it seems at some point, sort of merges into this. But the Bible wants us to know David was the one who had been leading the, the great accomplishment militarily against the Philistines. But Saul's mingled together with this because he's the king. He's the ultimate general, the commander-in-chief. So they're all celebrating and they're singing. Look at verse 7. Now we see what the song was that they sang. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands. Now, again, as I said, this was a common welcome home thing. And I assure you, knowing what we know about Saul so far, Saul loved to hear this tune when he came home. This is probably a typical song. Saul has slain his thousands. King Saul's returned home again. Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul was one of these kind of personalities we've seen who loved glory. And he loved to receive credit. He loved recognition. He always wanted to be acknowledged. It, it stroked his flesh and made him feel good. And he was a man who was filled with pride. And he loved to be honored and recognized. At times he would even tell Samuel, listen, I don't care what happens. Just honor me before the people. Just make me look good. So this is the nature of Saul. So when Saul hears them singing, oh, King Saul, he's slain his thousands. And then this day, as they're coming home, lo and behold, he did not know someone edited the song. They added a second verse to it. And no one got his approval from the palace. Saul has slain his thousands. And then they added verse 2. And David his tens thousands. And all of a sudden, Saul probably just was sort of stopped in his tracks. What? His ten thousands? But see, the reality is, this was true. This was just an accurate representation of what was happening. God was beginning to use David to a greater degree militarily. They were just celebrating David's accomplishments. David was accomplishing great things. God's hand was on David's life and his accomplishments were just simply being recognized. But you know this is not going to go well. Look at verse 8. And Saul was very angry. He wasn't just angry. He was very angry. This was not going on the top 40 charts in ancient Israel. Not under his lead. And the saying, look at it, displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? What else could this guy do but take the throne, he says. So Saul eyed David from that day 
forward. And the idea is, I, David, is he, he viewed him with suspicion. Now, from that day forward, there was a suspicious attitude that was in the heart of Saul towards David from that point forward. And it's very interesting. We look at verses 8 and 9. Do you take notice in the Bible here, David being a humble warrior... Up to this point, remember when David defeated Goliath, uh, David basically said, listen, you come to me with swords and weapons and all these things, but I come to you in the name of the living God. And he says, the battle belongs to the Lord. And David was a humble warrior who depended upon God for his victory. So David doesn't even seem to be phased by this song. They sang it, but David doesn't seem to be excited about it or phased or really inflated by it in his ego. Yet Saul, notice the Bible's very clear, Saul being someone who seeks glory and approval from others because he's a very insecure man, he is highly irritated. Highly irritated because he's not getting the greatest amount of attention. He's got strong feelings of jealousy and insecurity come over him and now he begins to dislike David to a great degree at this point because he now views David as a threat to him as a competitor and and this bothers Saul because the people were recognizing David's accomplishments and you know sometimes that can be the case with people when they have an insecure attitude they have a jealousy within them and whether they recognize that's what it is or not and, and it irritates them when other people's accomplishments are recognized It bothers them that someone else would be succeeding or having opportunities that they're not. And it actually not only displeases them, but it actually creates anger within them. And they begin to have a very negative attitude towards someone as they see this happening. And Saul now views David as a threat to his position and because Saul wants to do everything he can to hold on to his role. And he's thinking, what is this guy doing? Now he's getting all the attention What more could he do but steal the kingdom? And at this point, Saul becomes a great, uh, in a sense, enemy toward David. We'll see his attitude just drastically begins to change. And it happened, verse 10, the next day, notice, that a distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. And we've already talked about this before in prior chapters. Again, as we mentioned before, when Saul rebelled against God to the extent that he did, at a certain point, the Bible told us that God retracted his spiritual anointing from off of Saul's life. The anointing of God's spirit was upon Saul's life to enable him to function in his role and ministry as a king. But at a certain point, God retracted that anointing, that spiritual enablement from his life. And when God retracted the the, the presence of his spiritual anointing upon Saul's life, it at the same time made Saul become vulnerable to other things in his life. And he now becomes vulnerable because the favor of God has been pulled back from his life. And as a result, this unclean spirit that God allowed, as we talked about or permitted, has been coming and troubling him, this distressing spirit. And it comes upon him again in this moment. Interesting, it says, and he prophesied inside the house. Now, that's peculiar that this distressing spirit comes upon him and it says he prophesied. Now, Again, keep in mind, the Bible is very clear. Not every prophecy is from God. The Bible is very evident that there are such a thing as false prophets. Uh, Paul speaks to Timothy about lying 
and deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That is, there are spirits that speak deceptive things and there are doctrines, the Bible says, that are actually motivated by demons themselves. Keep that in mind when somebody wants you to subscribe to a particular doctrine that may or may not be within the realms of the church. And so Saul now, this distressing, unclean spirit comes upon him and he begins to prophesy. I have to think that what he begins to do is begin to just say some really odd things because unclean and unhealthy spirits lead people to act and behave in rather peculiar ways, again, because it's out of union with the will of God. So he begins to prophesy, but not necessarily meaning he was prophesying under the spirit of God. But this distressing spirit was directing him, oppressing his life. And notice, David, it says, played music with his hand as at other times. So they, David, you need to help him again. Can you play the music? So David starts to you know, lead his worship music again. He's trying to soothe Saul. And notice, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. Now, that's not good when somebody's got a distressing spirit troubling them, who's incredibly jealous and extremely insecure and a very angry individual, a very unstable individual, all of which Saul was at this point. And it says, verse 11, and Saul cast the spear. It says, cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. Now, that's a quick way to get rid of a worship leader. I don't recommend it. Um, no, no joke intended, or Chris. I was just, just kidding, buddy. <laughs> but David, it says, escaped His presence, notice, not once, the Bible says twice. So Saul now, being so unstable, again, this distressing spirit troubling him, oppressing him, now actually literally seeks to eliminate David. He actually seeks to harm, and I believe at this point it seems, as he casts a spirit at him, to actually try and destroy David, to kill him, to pin him to the wall with a spear and not only does he do it once but it says actually twice which means on two different occasions this happened and David by the grace of God was able to escape so having rejected God all these unhealthy things what's Saul doing now now he's behaving in hurtful ways he's trying to harm people he's doing things to try and eliminate David's presence because David's presence testifies to him of the presence of God And the presence of God is bothering him in this situation. So he throws a spear at David, not once but twice. And I want you to notice something in regards to David's situation. Here's David. David's in the will of God, man. He's not doing anything wrong. He's sitting here playing some worship. (laughs) I mean, he's trying to help Saul. He's just being faithful, doing what he's supposed to do. He's playing his worship music and trying to help Saul out. And he's dealing with all of his interpersonal issues and his emotional and spiritual and mental struggles. And here David, at times before, he's saying, okay, this works every other time. And And then all of a sudden, boom, here comes this spear flying at him. Not once, but twice, and he has to duck this spear. And what's da- David is in the center of God's will, and what's happening? He's being unfairly attacked. There are people in his life who are seeking to mistreat him, and he's having to deal with difficult people. But guess what God's doing? He's developing David's character. He's working in David's life. And imagine how God chooses to do that. He's letting people chuck spears at the poor guy. Chuck spears at him. 
He's having to deal with difficult people, those who are trying to hurt him, mistreat him. And, and, and this is a part of God's preparation process for David and the shaping and development of David's life and character and inner temperament spiritually. And listen, I understand people may not be, I hope not anyway, chucking literal spears at you and I in our lives. But people can say some pretty piercing things with their mouths. And it's amazing how people can sort of drive the point home, if you catch my drift, and, and say some pretty piercing, painful things that can be pretty destructive in our lives with just their words sometimes, and, and say things sort of chucking spirit. And here's the thing. It says not once but twice, David not only escaped what happened without being harmed, but here's the thing that impresses me all the more. Do you notice as well? David doesn't chuck the spear back. And keep in mind, David was a much more skilled warrior than Saul was. After the first spear, David could have took that out and said, Excuse me? <laughs> Do you remember what I did to that giant? I mean, I assume that David, as a warrior, who he was, and the way God, David could have took that spear and ran Saul through the first time and eliminated his issue with Saul. But not once, but twice, David refrained. He used self-control. And he chose not to retaliate. Why? To honor God. He honored God and did what glorified God in the matter rather than what would please him or satisfy himself. And again, listen, that's a part of development. That's a part of spiritual maturity. And, and here in our lives, listen, people are going to chuck spears, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to happen. But we have the choice whether we're going to grab the spear and we're going to chuck it back at them in our little arguments with people and firefights and verbal conflicts and things that we have the choice whether we're going to chuck spears back. That's something that we can choose to walk in mercy and use wisdom and honor God rather than letting anger direct us. Well, verse 12, notice, Saul was afraid of David. Isn't that interesting? You should think that David should be afraid of Saul. Saul just throwing spears at the guy. But notice, instead of David being afraid of Saul for throwing spears David's trust is in the Lord Saul is afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul so Saul's afraid of David because he senses God's presence is with David and he senses in his conscience that he's not in the right place in his own life so he's intimidated by David therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. He went out and came in before the people. Now, uh, notice, Saul doesn't like David's presence, so what does he do? Insecure people seek to remove the presence of people they feel threatened by. This is what insecurity does. It does whatever is necessary to drive people away, to rid them. So he, he now removes David, assigns him another position, and again, we'll see, this, this assigning him of a position, he's not trying to reward David here. Really, what he's trying to do is just make David more vulnerable to military conflict, hoping David will just get killed, is what he's really trying to do at this point. But verse 14 says, David behaved wisely. Again, notice the repetition of this. He behaved wisely in all his ways. Again, the Bible says, for the Lord was with him. Again, notice these are the things the Holy Spirit's trying to drive home to us. Why was David who he was? Because of the presence of the Lord in his life. It wasn't anything special about David. We're going to see later on, David's a man who has after the heart of God, but he also was a man who had a lot of fleshly weaknesses. 
He wasn't a perfect man by any means. It was the presence of the Lord that was with David's life that made David at times who David was. And that's why David did behave in the way that he did because God's hand was upon his life. And Saul recognized this. Therefore, when Saul saw, verse 15, that he behaved very wisely, again, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. So as David was being a good leader, like a shepherd, He was going out before the people. He was coming in before the people. David's actions represented to everyone his character. David didn't have to defend his reputation. Hey, Saul's throwing spears at me, man. That's not justified. David didn't have to do it. David just lived his life. He just went out and in and out and in, and he just lived his life before the people And it was impossible not to see the hand of God upon David's life, his wisdom in handling the affairs and his servant leadership among the people spoke volumes of just who he was and that the hand of God was upon him and that the Lord was with him. And we see here in verse 16, the people began to love David. The idea is they became devoted to David because of how he treated the people. They could see his heart and it caused their hearts to become naturally devoted to him as he led them in the way that he did. Verse 17, And then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now remember, Saul, one of his promises was whoever defeats Goliath, remember one of the promises was not only tax relief, but I'll give one of my daughters. You can become the king's son-in-law. So now Saul is trying to make good on that. He takes his eldest daughter. He says to David, hey, I'm willing to give you my eldest daughter as a wife. All I ask, I'm looking for a bride price. You don't have to pay me a high dowry, which was typical in that day, especially if you're going to marry a king's daughter. That dowry price and bride price was considerably more expensive. But he says, I don't need that. You just go out and fight the Lord's battles. Notice Saul's intention, though. He thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Again, what's Saul thinking? Anything I can do to just get this guy in harm's way. And he's thinking, listen, I don't want any bride price. I don't want any dowry. Just fight more victories. Go out and attack the Philistines more because he's thinking eventually, eventually the the percentages have to go in my favor. The ratio, if he's in enough battles, eventually one of the Philistines will kill the guy. Eventually he'll die. Now, this is kind of sad to recognize as we go on here. Saul is so driven to keep hold of what he wants and to get what he is after in his self-seeking, he's actually willing to use, to use his own family to accomplish his own agenda. I mean, this this is the epitome of selfishness. When people are willing to put their own family on the altar to just get what they're after. You know, the Bible tells us in James, we saw in chapter three, it says, whenever there's bitter envy and self-seeking, confusion and every evil thing are there and Saul's heart is filled with bitter envy and self-seeking and all this confusion and now these evil things that we see Saul starting to do he's seeking to use his own children for his own ultimate end and purposes thinking well look you if you want to marry her you just go out and fight a few battles and that will be sufficient hoping that david will just get murdered in the process and of course leave his daughter a widow right away in the midst of that 
So verse 18, David said to Saul, Who am I and who is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? Very humble attitude. But it happened at a time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was then given to Adriel, the Maholothite, as a wife. So that marriage never came to pass. Verse 20, however, now Michael, Saul's daughter, another one of his daughters, probably a younger one, she loved David. Again, very interesting. Jonathan loved David. Michael, his daughter, loves David. Saul hates David, and his kids love David. So now Michael falls in love with David, one of the younger daughters of Saul. And they told Saul, hey, your younger daughter, Michael, she's in love with David. And when he heard, look, it says the thing pleased him. Oh, great. She loves him. Fantastic. Here's another opportunity for me, he thinks. Verse 21. So Saul said, I will give her to him. Watch this. That she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him therefore Saul said to David a second time you shall be my son-in-law today so now he finds out his younger daughter Michael is in love with David and he says oh this is fantastic not because he's happy that his daughter would want to marry somebody again he's happy the Bible tells us is because Again, knowing something, and again, we're not told, knowing something about Michael, his daughter's temperament, something about her temperament, he recognizes, oh, perfect. This is better than Mary. She'll totally be a snare to David if she marries him. And he knows something about the the nature and temperament of his daughter that she would be like a snare, a trap, and she would be able somehow to interfere with what? David's devotion to God. And that somehow as a snare, she would sort of hold David back spiritually because David's love for God and his relationship with God was the key to David's life. Everything about David that made David who he was and experiencing the blessing and and success in his life all was connected to the fiber work of his love and devotion to God. And Saul sees something in his daughter about her moral condition, her spiritual nature and attitude, and he says, oh, yes, she will be a snag to him, man. Oh, man, she will snag him and trip him up and hold him back and interfere with his devotion for God. This is a perfect match to ruin this man. Now, I can't help but to look at this and to recognize, please don't miss, is it not very interesting to consider how the influence of a spouse in someone's life can either be an incredible help and an incredible asset or they can be an absolute snare. An absolute snare. It's interesting ultimately when we get to 1 Kings chapter 11 as it tells us Solomon, David's son, who was supposed to have been the wisest man on the earth. But it says he loved many foreign women. That is, not just women who were of a, du- a different ethnic or, or, or you know, nationality, but the point being women who were not yoked spiritually. They didn't have the same love for Yahweh God. They were idol worshipers. And it says Solomon clung to these in love and they turned his heart away from his God. His wives. 
And listen, I cannot exhort you enough if you still have the opportunity. <laughs> listen, the person you choose to marry can either be the greatest asset and assistance to help you and to expedite your life spiritually, to assist you, to bring you along and be a great contribution to help your devotion for God, or they can be the biggest snare your spiritual life has ever experienced and hold you back and hinder you and rob and ruin your relationship with God. And again, as we look at the life of Michael and her temperament and her nature plays out, we see this is ultimately what she does become because ultimately it says as David's worshiping God in 2 Samuel 6, he's dancing and leaping and praising the Lord and he's so excited as God's moving and he's bringing back the ark. It says that Michael despised it in her heart. She despised his enthusiasm for God. It irritated her. It bothered her. And she spoke against it and was critical. And again, what an important thing here to see. Saul recognized in the same way a spouse can be a great help. He says, oh, Michael, this is perfect. A match to be able to bring him down spiritually and snare him. So Saul commanded his servants saying, go communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king is delighting you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Verse 23, so Saul's servant spoke these words in the hearing of David and David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law? Seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man, again, David recognizes his condition, his humility. He says, look, I'm not of royal status I don't, I don't, and I don't even have the wealth to be able to afford to marry the king's son-in-law. I can't afford that kind of a bride price and a dowry. Again, I, I love how the Bible always indicates there this recognition of, of, of a bride, a wife had value. And he says, look, I, I can't afford this. I don't have what it takes to be able to do this. He realized there was something of value he was to bring to the table to be worthy of receiving the right and the privilege to have her as his wife. There was something he was to be able to offer and he realized, I'm just a poor and, and I'm a lightly esteemed man. I don't deserve to have her as my wife, a, a, a daughter of the king. So the servants told this to Saul saying, in this manner David spoke and Saul doesn't want to mess up this opportunity to snare David. So he says, look, Go tell David, the king does not desire any dowry. Just 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Yes, this is getting weird. To take vengeance on the king's enemies. Again, but, notice, but Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of of the Philistines. That's all that Saul's thinking about. So he says, look, I don't care about a dowry. All I want, just bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Now keep in mind, that's just a simple way, let me interpret to say, kill them. Because Philistines don't offer their foreskins if they're alive. You catch my drift, okay? That's a way of saying they're dead. They're dead. You kill them so you're able to do this to them to indicate to me they've got to be dead if you're bringing this back to me. So, he says, go out, just kill a hundred Philistines. Again, he's thinking in the midst of that, hopefully David will, will die. He can't destroy a hundred Philistines. In one. So he's thinking again, another opportunity to make David fall, to make David die. That's all he's thinking about. Go out and engage in battle. Hopefully you'll die and, and I'll, be, I'll be rid of you. Verse 26. So when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. He thought, I can handle that. 
Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and they killed 200 men. Notice, killed. 200 men. They did twice as much of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And I prefer not to commentate on that. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. And thus Saul knew. Saul knew the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy, notice, continually. Continually. At this point now, the animosity, the hatred of Saul towards David is just boiling. It's reaching its highest boiling point in his heart and again as I read that Saul became David's enemy continually what a fitting picture is it not of the enemy of our soul the devil that's exactly what the devil is in our lives spiritually our enemy continually the Bible says be sober and vigilant your adversary your enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and just like Saul is constantly continually looking for opportunity after opportunity after opportunity at every turn to bring David down harm David destroy David that's exactly what the enemy of our soul was doing and he doesn't take a vacation he doesn't ever have a change of attitude toward you and I. He is our enemy continually looking to ruin our lives. That's why we have to be sober and vigilant and realize that we have a continual enemy. We have to realize that. We have an enemy continually. And I think as well that Saul being an enemy continually is often a picture as well. Just you could say not only of the devil but of our own sinful flesh. Because I found in my life as a Christian... <laughs> My flesh, my sinful nature is an enemy continually in my life. Continually, my flesh is always trying to restrict God's will for my life to keep me out of right relationship with God, to keep me from walking in the Spirit, to make me behave foolishly. And again, we have these continuous enemies, these conflicts that we're dealing with in our lives, and we have to be aware of these things so that we're not defeated by our own sinful flesh or by the enemy of our soul, Satan himself. Well, verse 30 says, Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was wherever they went that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So notice at this point, God's clearly exalting David in the sight of the people. He's making his name esteemed. He's making him become famous, if you would. His name is, is on the lips of everyone. His name is being lifted up and exalted. And, and as I look at that happening with David, again, who is David? He's, he, he's, he's the one ultimately who's the one to the messianic line to Jesus, one greater than David, the son of David. And I can't help but to think as David was going about and God was exalting him and his name was being highly esteemed, that is exactly what God wants to do to a much greater degree, ladies and gentlemen, with the son of David, Jesus. That Jesus' name would be highly esteemed. His name. Because the Bible tells us that salvation is found in no other name. Because there's no other name given among heaven, among men by which we must be saved. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. This is what God wants to happen with David's son, the son of David, Jesus, that his name would be esteemed. Well, Saul says, spoke to Jonathan, his son then, and told all his servants that they should 
kill David. Notice, that's a direct threat there. Just murder him, he says. I don't even want him around anymore. Just do whatever you have to do to kill him. But Jonathan, his son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, remember, these two had become great friends, saying, My father seeks to kill you, therefore, please be on your guard until morning. And stay in a secret place and hide, and I will go out and stand by my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you, and then what I observe, I will tell you. So notice what happens. Jonathan now recognizes that his father has just put out a death threat on David's life. It's not subtle anymore. He just directly says, murder the guy, kill him. He, he puts out a, a threat on his life with Jonathan and all the other generals. And, he, and so Jonathan realizes now that if he's going to be a good friend to David, he's got to notify David of what's going on. And at this point, what is Jonathan doing here? Jonathan is being forced at this point in time now, as someone who loved God himself, he's being forced to have to choose between honoring God and honoring what is righteous or doing what would please his family. Because his father says, I want the guy dead. Kill him. Get rid of him. Eliminate him. And Jonathan now has to come to terms in his own life as someone who loved God and sought to do what was righteous and honor God. He has to choose now, okay, am I going to stand with God? Am I going to do what's righteous and honor God and do what would please the Lord? Or am I going to have the approval and the acceptance of my own father, of my own family? And he has to choose, in a sense, to not stand with his own blood, with his own family, to stand with God and to do what is right and righteous instead. And you know what? That's a hard thing to do, but I'll tell you something. It's going to happen from time to time in your life. There are going to be times when you may be forced into a situation or a scenario may arise where you are going to have to choose. I'm going to have to make a decision, perhaps in my life. Am I going to be willing to choose to honor the Lord, to obey the Lord, to do what I know is right? Or am I going to choose to have the approval and the acceptance of maybe my closest family members or someone who, in a sense, really, and have their approval instead. Because Jonathan knew in his heart, my dad's wrong. He's wrong. He's asking me to kill someone. That's, that's wrong. It violates scripture. It's not God's will. And this is a hard place to come to. But again, sometimes our faith is brought to these testing points where we have to decide what to do. And Jonathan here, wanting to be a good friend to David, he loves David. He begins to go to David and to caution him. Now he says, David, just get some space. Go out and, and, into the field and, and wait. Let me dialogue with my father. And watch these next few verses as we wrap up what Jonathan begins to do now. He goes and speaks to his father, verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul's father and said to him let not the king sin against his servant against David because he has not sinned against you he says David hasn't done anything wrong he hasn't sinned in any way against you and because his works have been very good to you he says David loves you he's been loyal to you he's been a faithful servant for he took his life into his hands and killed the Philistine and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for Israel you saw it, he says, Dad, and, and rejoiced when it happened. 
Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Boy, that's risky. He's having to rebuke his own father, who is the king, with the truth in a situation. So Saul, look what it says, verse 6. Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. He has a moment of temporary sanity here. And Saul swore, saying, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Thus Jonathan called David, told him these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. Now, uh, ultimately, that doesn't last real long because another spear gets shucked at him within the next, next verse or two. I said, this is temporary sanity for Saul. But Jonathan does something beautiful here. Jonathan stands in the gap for David out of his love for him. And he stands in the gap, you could say quite clearly, he stands in the gap and basically functions as what? Like a mediator, doesn't he? The king's son stands in the gap as a mediator because he loves David and he basically seeks to reconcile David back into the position that he had been, in a sense, pushed out of and he seeks to bring David back into relationship with the king and he advocates on David's behalf he turns away what? The wrath of the king, his father, from David and it says he brings David back into the presence as in times past once again. And I look at that and I think, man, not only what a great friend is that and a righteous godly man, but by goodness, what a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. We can't reconcile ourselves. We can't get ourselves back in good graces with God. And again, I realize you can't say that Saul's a picture of God. That's somewhat of a stretch there. But what Jonathan is doing is a beautiful picture in his mediation of Jesus. As an intercessor, he goes and he says, Listen, David, you can't solve this problem yourself. Let me go take care of it for you. And he goes and he speaks to his father and he intercedes and he turns away his father's wrath and he brings David back into the presence of his father. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. We can't fix our sin problem. Jesus said, Listen, you can't fix the problem, but I'll fix it for you because I love you and you're very important to me. And he went and he accomplished all that was necessary, our intercessor, our mediator, so that we could be brought back into relationship with God. And we now can have access to the presence. We have access to the throne of God, the throne of grace, because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's stand. Let's pray together. We'll close there for this evening.